We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Tuesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We got a great Tuesday podcast for you. Coming at you a day later than usual, uh, socialite Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, our hoops normal uh, Sunday hoops conversation. I uh, was pushed back a day because he uh, had a Super Bowl party. No, that's not really why. Just conflicting schedules. Had the Super Bowl on. Figure we would just push it a day. So got some Ole Miss, uh, a little bit of Ole Miss basketball talk. A lot, some big picture stuff. Bracken is uh, pretty much has a superpower in the sense he's the only one that can make talking about a uh, three and whatever basketball team interesting. Are they like three and ten in the SEC? So we talked a little bit about that. Whether Kermit deserves another year to fix it because. You know, with the Rebels losing at Missouri for a season sweep, uh, for Missouri to sweep them on the season, that Missouri team is also going to be looking for a new head coach. Those are the kind of losses that make you wonder, do you deserve a next year? And, like, before the, before the Missouri game, I was probably, like, 85% Kermit's probably getting another year to get this thing right. I'm probably still in a similar camp, but these are the kind of losses where you're like, well, you know, if it's that bad, like, do you actually deserve another year? So we put that into context, what the roster might look like next year. And then uh, talked a lot of different SEC stuff, Mississippi State, Kentucky rolling along, what to do about Mike White of Florida, and some other stuff. So I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. I think you will enjoy it as well. And then uh, we'll get into some baseball and then uh, a little bit of NASCAR later in the week. I've got Skybox's NASCAR handicapper coming on to explain the sport to me like I'm four years old. So if you have any questions you want me to ask him, feel free to shoot them my way. All right, before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Go get the NASCAR package right now. If you buy it now, your futures are free. NASCAR getting cranked up this week for the Daytona 500. The NASCAR package, they will start making picks toward the end of the month. They're going to let it get a couple races in, and then I believe that comes out at the end of the month. But if you use the promo code NASCAR, you get 30% off. All other purchases use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and you'll get 20% off. So go to skyboxsportspicks.com, find a picks package that fits your price range. They're going to have something for your preferred sport, whether it's month-long, season-long. You can do it across all sports, just one sport. They're absolutely destroying it in college basketball right now. 
year to date, Skyblocks was posting the stats last week, and I just want to make sure I have this right. As of last Wednesday, year to date, they were up 69 units on five unit max bets, 104 and 82. That seems pretty good. Overall, they're 411 and 357, up three, three, 73 and a half units. That means if you were a 50 unit better, you would have made three. 3600 bucks in that time if you're a 100 unit better you'd have made 7300 if you're a 500 unit better you'd have made 36k that's not a small amount of money if you're a thousand unit better that's 73,500 bucks that's called cashing in if you're into the sports wagering game you need to let skybox help you out you're never going to make money in the long run using your own dumb brain skybox are the professionals they will consistently lead you to profit and make it a bad day to be a bookie so check them out skyboxsportspicks.com use that promo code rippy R-I-P-P-E-E. Let them know he sent you. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. You know the deal. Go see Greg. Right now, if you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week. And discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just walk in, show Greg proof of subscription, and um, he'll get you set up. And then go find your own favorites at LB's. There's all kinds of great stuff, crad stuff, mushrooms, uh, bacon wrap filet, lane train special, all kinds of different cuts, fresh seafood, filet burgers. It's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. You need to go check it out. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great, and he will certainly do that. Weather's getting warmer. We've got baseball season coming up. Uh, well, baseball season like four days away, but as the weather gets warmer, becomes grilling season. You need to go check them out. We're going to get grill corners rolling again on the podcast. It's going to be awesome. Go check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, before we get to Bracken Ray, I had a couple of thoughts off the, off the top. I guess we'll start with the Super Bowl. Terrific game. Rams win 23-20. This one was pretty simple for me in terms of what stuck out from this game. One, first and foremost, Aaron Donald. Holy shit. I am not sure I've ever seen a non-quarterback affect the second half of a game or really just affect a game like Aaron Donald did in the second half. And to me, that was the difference. The Rams had an Aaron Donald and the Bengals did not because Joe Burrow, I thought, played fine considering the circumstances. And Matt Stafford was pretty good. Matt Stafford was really good late. We'll get to that in a minute. But Aaron Donald pretty much decided that he wasn't having this and they were going to win this game. And that's exactly what happened. Burrow only sacked one time in the first half, six times in the second half. I think... Donald had two of those sacks, but if you look at the way the game played out and look at the couple of the other ones, well, at least one of the Von Miller sacks was pretty much accredited to Donald and what he was able to do on the play to allow Von Miller to be freed up. I would guess without being caring enough to go back and watch the entire second half, I would guess at least one more of those was probably Donald's responsibility. He was absolutely unbelievable. And to me where the Bengals screwed up in this game is – that our drive early in the second half where Burrow or somewhere midway through the second half where Burrow's like running to the sidelines. He's going out of bounds, but he's still inbounds and Donald shoves him. And Donald's so damn strong, he threw him like basically <laughs> into the uh, into the Bengals bench. Well, we have this rule now where a quarterback, if he gets hit anywhere close to the sideline, someone's got to get up in the defender's face, even though it's perfectly legal, and talk shit to him. That seems like a terrible idea when the guy you're supposed to get up, the guy whose face you're supposed to get into is uh, Aaron Donald. And after that, Aaron Donald played with a little bit of a different motor. He was seemed a little bit pissed off. I would be too. They were chirping at him, and the game was really just different from there. And then it comes down to the last drive. I mean, look at the last sequence of plays. Aaron, the third and one where 
Cincinnati is trying to sneak a first down. They waste the second down where they throw it deep, which I thought against this Rams defensive front was a mistake. I think you just get the first down and then try to regroup again. But they waste the second down. Then on third and one, they try to sneak a first down with Samaje Piran. And Samaje Piran, not the biggest back in the world, but also not a small human being. And he runs into Aaron Donald and just stops going forward. It's, it's one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen. And I think it was pretty underrated. Samaje Piran, he is 5'11", 180. I think that's correct. 5'11", I want to make sure I have this right. Not a small dude. No, 5'11", 240. Excuse me. I was looking at the next guy on the depth chart. So 5'11", 240 pounds, just runs into Aaron Donald's arm and it just stops moving forward. The raw strength that that guy has is really beyond anything we've ever seen in the NFL. It's unbelievable. So he stops him on the third down and then you have the fourth down. Who makes the play? Who blows it up? Who puts Joe Burrow in an impossible situation to where he can't really make a normal throw? Aaron Donald. And the game's over. That, to me, those last two plays were indicative, and the entire sequence with that whole thing played out was indicative of just how much an impact Aaron Donald had on the second half of this game and ultimately swung this game. What was the other thing that swung this game? Well, I guess adding on to that, the Bengals just didn't have a good enough offensive line to win a Super Bowl. I saw some stat yesterday where their offensive line total had a 14% success rate in terms of like winning blocks and winning on pass protection. That's, uh, that's just not good enough. To win, I mean, that's I think would have been the lowest in a Super Bowl of all time. I think was the lowest in a Super Bowl of all time if you're into that kind of next gen stat stuff. But even beyond that, you could tell the offensive line was overwhelmed. They did their best to get around it and not have Aaron Donald blow up everything they were trying to do in the first half. But in the second half, it was just too much. Donald made, made too much of an impact. And again, I think that final drive was indicative of it because who made the final two plays pretty much single handedly? Aaron Donald. Now he's a Super Bowl champion, which Seems fitting for a career that's about as unprecedented as we've ever seen. Guy's been in the league eight years. He's been to eight Pro Bowls and has been a seven-time first-team All-Pro. So he was Rookie of the Year and then seven-time first-team All-Pro. Think about how ridiculous that is. I mean, that's that's top three, top or top, you know, it's kind of one of one at your position, seven of eight years, and probably top three in that rookie year as well. It's uh, pretty unbelievable stuff from Aaron Donald. And then the other part of this, Stafford was great when he had to be. I don't think it was his best game for the first about two and a half quarters, but when he needed it most, they were pretty good. They get the ball with five and a half minutes left. You're thinking maybe they have time for two more drives, but it became evident after one or two first downs when they got it to midfield and the clock was winding to about three minutes and then pretty quickly slipped to under three minutes. No, this is it. They're down four. If they're going to score, they have to do it on this drive. And Matt Stafford let him down the field and did it. Yes, the penalties I thought were pretty weak. The holding call – uh, at the eight-yard line on uh, the linebacker's name escaping me. Pretty weak. But, I mean, the throw that Matthew Stafford made on the second and seven to Cooper Cup, the no-look throw, I've seen, I'm have seen. i sure you've seen it on social media. You know, when Mahomes does that, you have half of the national media, you know, wondering if they are going to go into labor online uh, in terms of how badly they fought over it. And uh, Matthew Stafford had it in the biggest moment to have the balls to make that type of throw and to execute it the way he did is pretty remarkable because it moved the linebacker perfectly out of the way. You could see, I forget, I think it was Von Bell for Cincinnati, was going to probably deflect that pass was in perfect position, moves over to his left, Stafford's right, because Stafford is looking at the other receiver and then throws the no-look to Cup, moves the linebacker out of position just enough to fit it in that window and a throw that changed the course of the game. Just an unbelievable throw and a guy that, because he played for Detroit for nine, ten years, whatever it was, hadn't been in that many big moments. And to have the balls to try that throw and pull it off in that moment with the limited sample size that he has in, term, in big playoff games and limited, limited experience is pretty remarkable. 
Uh, I was kind of hoping sentimentally that Joe Burrow would win. I say sentimentally. I don't, Joe Burrow does not hold any sort of sentimental interest for me. Just if you were looking for someone to root for, I was rooting for Burrow. But Stafford getting a Super Bowl, Aaron Donald getting a Super Bowl, pretty good consolation. I mean, they were both pretty likable stories. And it was a hell of a game. Cincinnati probably needs to rectify that offensive line. Rams went all in to win a Super Bowl this year in their home stadium, and they pulled it off. Congrats to them. All right, let's see. Oh, last thing I wanted to get to before we get to the Bracken Ray conversation was Ole Miss released its starting rotation for the weekend on Monday. And it is pretty much what I expected. They could find us one thing. You are going to get Diamond on Friday, which we already knew. You're going to get Texas A&M Corpus Christi transfer John Gaddis on Saturday. And then I figured Jack Washburn would be the Sunday starter, the Oregon State transfer. But it is actually Drew McDaniel going to get the nod, which uh, presumably – that means that Jack Washburn is going to start on Tuesday against Arkansas State. I haven't seen Washburn throw in person at Ole Miss. I, there's, you know, you had more of a sample size with him than you did on Gaddis in terms of readily available, we'll call it film, but you know, pitching in uh, big-time circumstances because Washburn was at Oregon State last year. So you kind of knew a little bit more about him. Washburn's a legitimate three-pitch guy. You know, he's probably going to have a mid-90s fastball and has two other legitimate pitches. That, to me, translates to him eventually being in the weekend rotation and probably being the Saturday guy. I think I'm going to stick to my guns on that and think that's where he eventually ends up. But the fact that Drew McDaniel earned a weekend rotation spot is not shocking to me by any stretch. Um, You know, he had moments last year. He's a highly rated kid. He's a talented kid. I think he suffered from a little bit of predictability last year by only being able to throw two pitches for strikes. And even when he was throwing those two pitches for strikes, he wasn't always throwing strikes overall either. I think there was some predictability there. I think there were some confidence issues at times, but he had moments where he was pretty good. And he's a talented kid. And I'm curious to see how he's developed as a pitcher in terms of then developing his slider and uh, changeup, right? He was pretty much fastball, curveball last year, somewhere in that 90 to 93 range. And that was really about it. And sometimes when it really mattered, he struggled to throw that curveball for strikes. How are, like, when a guy takes a jump, it's usually, and Mike's, Mike, probably, Mike and this pitching staff or coaching staff, excuse me, probably don't get enough credit for this. In terms of guys adding pitches or getting a lot better at the two or three pitches they throw in the year-in, year-out basis, year-over-year, Ole Miss has been pretty good at developing guys in that sense. And I'm curious to see if McDaniel does indeed make a jump this year, is that curveball just that much better? Is the you know slider or change-up, whatever it is they maybe have added or refined, like do you, does he become an actual third-pitch guy? And does that become an actual – I guess, asset of a pitch, for the lack of a better phrase. I'm curious to see what that looks like. But it's not necessarily shocking to me that McDaniel slid into one of the weekend rotation slots to start the year. I'm curious to see what it looks like. We may not learn a whole lot because, again, it is Charleston Southern. This is a favor to former Ole Miss assistant Mark McMillan, who's now the head coach at Charleston Southern. Non-conference um, competition is not as steep as it's been in year past vcu was a regional team last year actually had like a top 40 rpi they were pretty good and then ucf is a decent program not a great program even though they took two or three from Ole miss last year so i don't think we'll necessarily learn much about it this weekend in terms of like who the rotation is going to be long term i will say as this non-conference season progresses i don't think anyone one through three is going to have a particularly long leash and i just think eventually given the talent and what we know Jack Washburn is, probably ends up as a weekend rotation guy. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe McDaniel, you know, is 
actually has kind of gone up a level and Gaddis is as good as advertised and that's the way it sticks. But I just think at the end of the day, Washburn's going to probably be in the rotation. But again, I keep saying it, not necessarily shocking that McDaniel's getting the nod here. A guy that cut his teeth a little bit in the midweek. They tried him in the rotation after Gunnar Hoagland went out. It didn't work out great. And then Diamond comes back in. But uh, talented kid. And, you know, this is kind of his moment. Like, you know, it's, he's not a freshman anymore. This is his third year in the program. You know, what what exactly is he going to be? Because this is uh, – this is I don't want to say it for him, but, like, he needs to have a role on this team. And being a Sunday guy would probably maximize his value because I'm just not positive how he projects out of the pen. I could see him in some long relief situations, but he certainly projects as a starter. So I'm curious to see what that looks like. As far as Gaddis, not really shocking that he's uh, the Saturday guy. Some Christian Trent buzz to him in that sense. I think he's an older guy, not necessarily going to blow you away with the stuff, but he knows how to pitch and knows how to get dudes out which I think benefited him at Texas A&M Corpus Christi when he was coming off that injury. And, you know, it seemed like once he got midway through the year, I think over his last 40 innings, he allowed like four earned runs or something ridiculous. Again, not the steepest of competitions in the Southland there, but I mean, a couple of good programs there, there, Sam Houston State, among others. And once he got healthy, he was pretty much unhittable. And he's a dude that's pretty much fastball, decent changeup, and throws a curveball every now and again if we can get it over, but just knows how to pitch and knows how to get guys out. So, I'm not necessarily – or I'm not shocked at all that Gaddis was the second guy there. I figured that would be the case. I would actually – if you may be the most confident upon who stays in the rotation, I might be Gatt, it might be Gaddis because he's never going to be expected to be the number one guy or the anchor of the staff at any point this year unless something's gone horribly wrong. And I think he, fit, he profiles to either that Saturday or Sunday role pretty well. A veteran guy who knows how to pitch in a very offensive SEC and knows how to get dudes out because – if you know how to pitch and you know how to get guys out, as cliche as it sounds, that's going to play in this SEC. Like, you don't necessarily have to have the overwhelming Friday night type stuff because if you're keeping guys off the base pass, that is going to work and outs are going to be at a premium in a league where pretty much everyone that's good, everyone contending in the top half of this league is going to hit, while the pitching in a lot of instances in this league is kind of unproven this year. So that's all Mrs. Weekend Rotation. Some thoughts on that. I'm interested to see – uh, Washburn on Tuesday as well and uh, it is college baseball season again Colin and I will have a little bit more of a focus preview on Wednesday but I uh, just wanted to hit that before uh, before we got into the Bracken Ray interview all right here is Bracken Ray on Ole Miss and our weekly SEC basketball conversation all right we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy Stafford Bracken Ray joining me on a Monday night so one day later than usual that is because Bracken is a huge Nashville socialite and threw a, uh, what I heard was a black tie bash for the Super Bowl. How was your party? It was great. Not, uh, not quite the black tie. I think that would have gotten a little messy, but we had a good time. Uh, pretty fun game as well and just trying to get through my Monday now. It was funny. We were talking off the air uh, right, right before. So you are a recent homeowner, right? You bought a place in Nashville not too long ago. You're talking about how – you were probably a little more like cavalier and more liberal about, you know, having get togethers and dudes over when you're a renter, just because look, like it's not your place at the end of the day, unless you burn the damn thing down, like eh, security deposit, just ding me a little bit there. When you're a homeowner, your mindset kind of changes a bit. I had a buddy, the last place I lived in Oxford, he owned the house and not that he was any sort of stiff about having people over, but it's just funny how your mindset changes to where like, 
a drunk guy that might drop like, you know, Jack Daniels fifth with some shards of glass on the ground. That's not quite as uh, uh, to hell with you worry about tomorrow when you own the place. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Definitely. I wouldn't say I'm stiff, really too stiff, but like in the garage, it was probably 40 yesterday. So we went to Home Depot and rented essentially what's a flamethrower, but one of those like, you know, 450 square foot heaters. And I was so nervous the whole time. I was like, if this catches anything on fire, I'm done. So, you know, it's, it's funny how uh, that kind of stuff will mature you a little bit, I guess. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. I mean, when you own it, you, it's just one of those natural things. Like you, you, you notice some of the more details, uh, uh, more for sure. Speaking of uh, details or a lack thereof, Ole Miss goes on the road on Saturday night. They lose, what, 74-68 to Missouri. This version of Missouri team who's not very good sweeps Ole Miss on the year. I always like to give the people out there listening full transparency. I watched about two minutes of this thing. I was getting ready for a Valentine's dinner. Uh, get that out of the way on Saturday night. And particularly with the way that game started, I was like, hey, this is probably not even catching phone attention when we get to this Valentine's dinner. We'll do a lot of big picture stuff. I know you loosely watch some of this. It's kind of hit that point of the season, but this is a brutal loss, right? Like, I mean, like there's really no way to draw it up. I get it's on the road, but I mean, this Missouri team shoots 54%, and this is after they ran you out of the gym on your home floor. This is, this is a tough one to swallow from an optics standpoint. Yeah, pretty bad one. Um, obviously, you know, you talk about two teams that are Tuesday night, the tournament team. Um, you look at it, the, this group with Ruffin in was sharing the ball better. And, you know, fi- he, was fi- he was finding ways to create. And we knew that when he went out, there would be some problems with that as well. Seven um, assists on 27 made field goals. Pretty tough there. Um, at Ole Miss actually shot 50% from the uh, field, but 22% from the three, uh, under 60% from the free throw line. Pretty tough one. And, you know, this is a group, I mean, Conzo's uh, dead man walking. This is not a very good Missouri team, right? And to get popped by them in the first game and then, you know, Ole Miss kind of got it close there towards the end in this one, but it, it wasn't much of a game at times as well. Um, it's a it's a pretty tough one for this group, and um, you know losing to Alabama as well this week. Uh, you you felt like just from a, we we talked about hope a lot on this podcast, and we know that postseason is not really a thing. But just for the state of momentum and going into next year, you wanted to get at least one of two this week, and uh, obviously weren't able to make that happen. Right, and they were like kind of. You talk about like that not having necessarily postseason expectations, but they were close to kind of. The whole, I mean, as you use a Bill Ball phrase, win one for the Gipper, that's not necessarily the right term, but kind of rallying the troops and, you know, putting together a strongest finish to the season, right? Like, you let that one slip away at Florida. You can't necessarily knock them for that. But it was a one-in-one week with two road games. And then if you go one-in-one this week, you're kind of riding the ship and not, you know, just like, okay, we'll see you next year. This felt like the loss to where everyone, like the the average fan, even probably some of the diehard fans, kind of tunes it out the rest of the year to where it's like, man, this is this is a tough one to swallow. You got right to the heart of the issue, though, in terms of exactly how this happened and what the anatomy of this was. Kind of backing up a little bit, too, like just kind of the week as a whole, Ole Miss's offense was not an issue in either game. And you sit there and you think, well, they scored 68 points. That's not exactly setting the uh, the net ablaze. 
But Ole Miss scores, you know, 86 or 83, 83 on uh, Tuesday night or Wednesday night against Alabama. And then they get to 68 and shoot 50% from the field in this game. Outside, we'll get to the assist part of it in a second, but their defense has let them down the last couple, uh, the last two games in some ways. You know, Missouri scores 74 points, but that's a Missouri team with not a lot of offensive firepower that shoots 54% from the field, 7 of 14 from the three-point line. And then Alabama just absolutely torched them from the perimeter. What have you seen from them defensively that's changed? Is it just a lack of depth showing up with Ruffin on the floor? Because that doesn't necessarily seem to add up because, you know, he's a 5'9 freshman. What have you seen from them defensively the last two games? Yeah, well, I think sometimes, too, I mean, you talked about it. You know, we, they are scoring at a decent pace, but they've had some bad possessions in both games, too, which have led to um, some hard defensive stops as well. If you have, you know, long rebounds, bad possessions that lead to turnovers, whatever the case may be, that can end up in transition buckets or uh, more possessions for the group. They're playing against offensively, got out-rebounded, I think, by five or so against Missouri. One thing that, you know, I noticed in both games um, that they've not been great at all year and definitely happened this week is they get basket cut um, and back cut at a pretty high rate. Um, that's their one of their biggest play type deficiencies for this group. And if you look at it, teams this year, I've noticed it even more in the past couple of years, but teams are doing a lot of uh, dribble at basket cuts and the way that groups are guarding uh, people aggressively and trying to jump passing lanes. It's something that's happening a lot right now, but Ole Miss is really poor at it. And I thought we saw it a decent bit this week as well. One of the things I know we started with the Missouri game, but like going back to Alabama, one of the things I wrote down from watch, I did watch all of that game on Wednesday night or whatever that, whenever that was, Alabama was torching Ole Miss from like perimeter jump shots, right? The Shackleford kid goes for 30, whatever that other guy's name is off the bench went for 18. They shot the three really efficiently. It looked like Ole Miss zoned them for a lot of that game. And like your simple dumb brain would be like, why are they zoning them if they're continuing to get beat over the top? Did you see the same thing? And do you think there's a reason for that? Uh, are you talking about the Bama game? Yes. Yeah. So Kermit likes to do this thing. Um, and it works more than it doesn't, but sometimes he likes to run a zone that's that, um, a two-three zone that's a little higher than most um, against teams that actually like to shoot it from the perimeter a lot. It stretches it out and makes them try to play through their forward some. And I know that you know we've talked about this a lot. I'm not impressed with Bama's forwards at all. Um, and looking at the stat line for that game, no, nobody really on their team um, at the big spot, you know, played super well. But they, they try to do that sometimes. They did it against Jared Harper and Bryce Brown a couple years ago, and it was a huge success. Essentially, they'd run a 2-3 zone, and they'd, they'd get their two guards. At, instead of um, playing kind of free throw line extended, they play them at the top of the perimeter and stretch it out. So, you know, Kerman at times likes to do that to kind of switch it up because you think against a good perimeter shooting team, you don't want to do that. And it kind of shocks people offensively sometimes. But they – Alabama, I mean, you know, shot the shit out of it in that game. And you look at um, – Jaden Shackelford had 30 that night against it as well. So, from an execution standpoint, it didn't work. And J.D. Davidson, who hasn't – probably hasn't lived up to most people's expectations – he has 18 in that game and was SEC freshman of the week, too. So he got hot early and 
and got into a rhythm in it as well. For Ole Miss on on the offensive side of it, or actually, I have one more defensive question. You mentioned them being high, like playing a zone higher up. Do you think Kermit, particularly in that game, and again, I didn't watch a ton of the Missouri game. You know, always, always so much attention a guy can have on this uh, you know, second to last place basketball team in the SEC. Is there any part of him maybe leaning on the zone because of a lack of depth? I mean, I'm getting into like Turks League two three territory in terms of like the mindset. Do you think he goes a little bit more zone? due to a lack of depth in trying to conserve energy, or do you think that's factored in anything he's done at all? No, I mean, I think it's a, it's a little bit of depth and it's a little bit of, you know, strategy and personnel. Um, I actually was a little surprised they didn't execute better and uh, run the one three one more with Ruffin on because in the one three one we did this with Moody and Marshall a lot. You can hide people in that zone that have defensive, you know, um, inefficiency, so to speak. And Ole Miss wasn't great at it for that stretch that he was in, so that's probably part of it. Um, but, you know, it is a little surprising to see that it's kind of been the reverse of that. And it'd be really interesting to do, you know, a usage uh, case study on them running it with and without him on how, how much they ran it with him and then looking at the before and after when he got hurt as well uh, to see that too. You mentioned the offensive part of this is uh, since uh, Deshaun Ruffin has gone out, the assist numbers have gone down for Ole Miss. You, uh, for this uh, past game, the Missouri game, what they had a total of seven assists on 27 made field goals. That's not a great ratio, particularly when you're talking – no, excuse me, that's – yeah, no, that's seven assists. You had three yeah. guys on the entire team. They played one – two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dudes, and three had assists. That doesn't seem like a great mix. Well, it goes back to what we've talked about since the preseason, Rippy. They do not have guys that can create for themselves. And when we, when we think of creating, you know, for ourselves, we think of that as being able to go score, right? But being able to create means being able to get to your spot, get downhill, make two guard one, if, you know, you beat somebody off the dribble and nobody steps up and help, boom, you can shoot it on your own. Two guards, one, you've got to pass for an uncontested look as well. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that's really interesting there too. I, I ran something on Synergy um, the other day. And another factor that, that's really interesting on this team from an assist standpoint, if you look at it this year, taking out rough and compared to last year is, Romello White was a really good passer. Uh, he was a really good passing big. And he was um, third in the country in post-up field goal percentage last year. And that's like minimum 100 attempts, I think, is how they run that. But what would happen is he would post up and people um, in help would either dig off of him or they would double him. And it, it led to a lot of uncontested looks. Now, that led to a lot of uncontested misses as well. But that's where they got assists from that weren't created by Schuler in transition. And, you know, I think that, you know, Nas Brooks has definitely given them some good stuff this year. But he doesn't have uh, quite that threat and that attention on the inside. Um, and that's another area that they're kind of – that's where they're losing assists compared to last year as well. Jarkel Joyner goes – uh, I just had it up. He, oh, he goes five of 12 in this game, over two from three, 13 points in 34 minutes, only gets to the free throw line. I guess that would be twice marring it and one. 
that's – I mean, that's not a terrible stat line for him by any stretch of the imagination. But given what this team is working with at this point, he's got to be up toward the 18 to 20 points a game and doing it much more efficiently for them to have much of a chance, right? I mean, that's a, kind of the story with this team in a lot of regards. You have dudes – they don't have a lot of depth. And then you have guys that are not making huge contributions given their minute a lot. I mean, that's not necessarily fair to Joyner, but I guess sticking on him before we get to a couple of these other guys – He's got to kind of be a, a superman in that sense from a scoring standpoint because they can't get it anywhere else. And that just didn't happen, and they didn't stand much of a chance because of it. Yeah, and, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, the, the Bama game, he scores, what, 33 that night? Yeah. And so when you look at it the week as a whole, he gave you probably exactly what you expected out of him um, if, you, if you average it out. But, you know, for him it's tough. I mean, he's still two weeks off of – you know, getting back into the rhythm with this injury. And he's played 35-plus minutes, you know, since he got back. So, you're asking a lot out of him at this point. But you're right, you know, at this point in the season and who you're playing against defense the past little bit is not played as well. Um, you got to have it out of him. So, he's got to be A-plus every game for them to stay in it. What you just outlined is not completely fair. And it's a shame, like, we just glossed over that. And I didn't even bring up his performance on – Wednesday night because they lost but I mean that guy's going for 33 against Alabama particularly against that backcourt given what he'd coming off of right he's one game removed from missing five six weeks or whatever that was a remarkable performance that was just completely washed away in a double digit loss and it was a shame because particularly for about the first 16 17 minutes of that game he was kind of unreal oh no doubt no doubt and you know that's the tough part that um when you lose the spotlight gets taken off of you because Shackelford played the same minutes and had three plus points, and the broadcast was about Shackelford the whole time, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's what happens when you're winning and up big and stuff like that. And Jarkel may have gotten kind of some easy buckets towards towards the end as well, um, you know, because the game was getting out of reach. But that's that's a tough thing for Jarkel because he he played a hell of a game that night. Have you seen anything since he's come back that has surprised you at all? I mean, I've been a little surprised with the amount of minutes he's been able to play. Um, that has to I be about necessity, though, right? Because if he's if, – 100%. If, right, because if he's on a leash at all, they're totally screwed. We didn't – we never saw the game without Ruffin and Jarkel. I thought that was going to happen against Florida, but we haven't seen it. But that has to be just to keep them competitive, which is kind of a tough place to be. 100%. And, look, Jarkel wants to win. He's a competitor. This is probably eating him up as much as just about anybody. He's a hometown guy, uh, hometown guy, obviously. And so that, that's been the part that I, I've got a lot of respect for him just jumping right into it like that because it's, it's hard. And we talked about this a week or two ago, but there's a difference between being hurt and, you know, being on the elliptical treadmill or whatever and being an actual basketball shape. And I think they're – you know, philosophy, and it's probably coming from him too, is just throw me in the fire and we'll get to that spot at some point. Right, and the idea that – so we we got the six-week timeline for a back injury, and that was kind of – if you talk to anyone, was – I don't want to say conservative, but mostly just a broad – a broad, uh, pretty general, I guess, timeline. Because with back injuries, it's kind of a fickle thing. Even if you're, like, healthy-ish – it can continue to linger on. And I guess I say all of that to say the idea that he's 100% healthy and all of a sudden when they inserted him into the lineup against Florida that his back was 100% fine is probably close to 
impossible. And so the fact that he's doing all of this coming off the back issue that he's had and probably still dealing with it to some extent is pretty admirable for a team that really doesn't have any postseason aspirations. No doubt. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. So last thing before we move on to hit some of the SEC stuff, we talked about this right before we started recording and kind of how we wanted to hit the topic, kind of the big picture topic of this program. And I'll just start it out this way. I would went into this past week, like I think as soon as Ruffin went down at LSU, my first instinct outside of, damn, that sucks for the kid. I really hope he's okay out for the year. As soon as you got the news he was out for the year, it was probably pretty safe to assume that Kermit's going to get another year. You know, fair, unfair, whether you like it, don't like it, whatever. When you lose your top two scorers for a large chunk of the season and you don't have them on the floor together hardly at all for probably – if you put if you added up the minutes total, it's probably two games worth of minutes tops. You're going to get the benefit of the doubt and come back next year. But this kind of loss to this Missouri team and having a sweep or having this version of a Missouri team who has a coach, as you mentioned, at the top, is a dead man walking, at least poses the question of whether you deserve another year at this. And I still lean pretty heavily that Kermit is going to get one more year to try to kind of figure this out and get this right. But, like, even if you were working on a staff, I know you guys probably don't, like, address it or something, but if you were in their shoes and this was one of the staffs you were on, this is the kind of loss where you kind of look back subconsciously and you're like, All right, this is the one that makes people question things, right? Well, yeah, these are the kind of losses that, you know, AK would come in the film room after the game and he'd go person by person and let us know what we were all going to do when we got fired after the season. <laughs> he'd let us know what our new job title, you know, Todd Abernathy was going to be an FCA director. Bill Armstrong was going to be selling insurance in Pontotoc. Madlock was going to be Memphis Melrose's coach. I mean, we, we could go all the way top bottom. Um, no, but anyway, um, yeah, for, for this staff, you know, I, you and I have talked about this for years now. I don't, I don't think that this program can afford to consistently, and I don't even mean afford financially. I just mean afford in general. Um, From a credibility standpoint. Yeah, turning through coaches every three or four years, right? I just don't think that they can, they can do that. Um, but – with this group right now, you know, you're second to last in the SEC, whatever it is, three and eight or so in the league right now, and have some bad non-conference losses as well. You know, it, it all is going to depend on how this season ends because I, I think that this administration would prefer to, um, you know, give Kermit another year. I feel pretty good about that as we sit here today, um, mid-February. If it gets to a point where you you only win one more game the rest of conference play or something like that, I think the question that Keith would have to ask himself, there's a few, right? What are season ticket sales going to look like next year? Well, one thing that's going to help with that is Ruffin at least is pretty electrifying and entertaining to watch. So I think a lot of people would go to watch him play. The second is um, if you – get to the point where you went, you know, go four and whatever it is, four and 14 in the league. Some of these guys that you want to keep on your team um, that we all think are high major players, are they going to want to return to a team that's, that went four and 14 the year before that? Um, the same could probably be said about some staff that is, is, is talented as well. Um, 
And so I think that's where you get into it. And, um, and then the last one, and again, I think roughing kind of helps here, but if you have another year where you are a Tuesday night team in the tournament um, after this year, do you lose some fans because of it? You know, this, this program has not experienced a ton of postseason success. And I think that over the past couple of years or so, um, really kind of starting with Marshall, you've really gotten students involved a lot more than ever. I'll be at the, you know, uh, Evans little run and Rod Barnes run. I think students have been really good from a turnout standpoint. But if you get two back-to-back years like this, you kind of wonder if people lose interest a little bit. And um, that's where it gets tough. Right now, you made a good point when we started, it's like, hey, you lose these two and get swept by Missouri. Well, baseball starts Friday, right? So not only did this happen, but you have baseball starting Friday. Everybody's attention is about to be on baseball. You've probably got one of the best offenses in the country this year. So it's a, it, it's a really weird dynamic. I think this team, I think, is still capable. I mean, they've shown it in, against, Al, Al, or excuse me, against LSU and Mississippi State. You know, they can go win some that they shouldn't. They can go beat some tournament teams when they're playing good. Um, I think it would really have to spiral out of control and only, you know, one or two more at the conference games. But then I would think that this administration would le- at least have to start asking some questions. The devil's advocate to that is, it's my opinion that there's going to be a lot of similar jobs to Ole Miss that are open this year. Um, the South Carolinas, Mississippi States of the world, um, Georgia is a, is a better job, um, but in a similar, you know, in a similar uh, level. How competitive can you be against some of those schools? You know, is a question you may have to ask yourself too. So. There's there's a lot that goes into it, but right now I don't get the sense that there's a ton of urgency to to make that move uh, inside the athletic department. Yeah, I think you're right, and they, you know, had this not happened, and like say you win this game, like it it probably doesn't change things long term, but it it probably brings up the back of mind conversation of just how bad is this and like could it bottom out? Because I think one of the things that you would look at, and I'm not I can't read Keith Carter's mind. And he certainly doesn't think the same way I do because if uh, if I thought the same way as him, I'd probably be doing something other than this podcast. But, like, this type of loss is kind of where you look at it and you're like, okay, you're about to go, you know, it could this could go to 4-14 four and 14 in the league, right? They get South Carolina at home as we record this, you know, 24 hours-ish from now, and then you go at Georgia. To me, this is a pretty pivotal week, right? Like, if you go 0-2 this week, where are you picking off another win? It's not happening right? Like, you got to get at least one this week, and you probably need to get two. But, like, as you mentioned, say they go one and four down the stretch or whatever they get is, is five, six, six games, one and five. Then you go four and 14 in the league. You look around, and you're sitting there thinking, how does this get any better? Because the SEC is not getting worse. And this Missouri team, who's going to fire their coach and have a program transition, just kind of stuffed you in a locker twice. And you can't view that in a vacuum, but like that's the kind of loss where you wonder like what is actually the floor of this and has this bottomed out. So I agree with you in that sense. I'll pose this in a question. You mentioned some of the like the importance of one keeping the players here. It's the staff here. We'll start with Ruffin. Why do you uh like you've you've seen pretty like safe in your assumption that Ruffin will still be here? Why do you think that versus like say 
I'm not putting words in your mouth, but like Morell. Like Morell seems like a guy who would probably, just off the top of my head, would seem more right for the picking for another program. Why is that the yeah. case? Like I don't even know why that's the case, but it just feels right, if that makes any sense. You know, um, for there's a few things. Um, first is Morell had a – and when I say bad year, I don't mean like am, amnosity at all or anything like that, but year one wasn't a fun year for Matt Morell, if I had to imagine, right? So you go into year one, and then year two, you kind of prove that you can do it. Um, I don't know anything about situa- his situation. I don't know about the kid personally. I do think that there are people out there that really want him at the P5 level. For Ruffin, and this is how you have to play it out. It's kind of like the analogy I always make to my buddies when looking at how good we're going to be this year. It's, it's like, well, look at who we brought in. But, guys, you got to look at who else everybody brought in as well. For Ruffin, it's kind of the reverse of that. I don't know that there are many op- like situations that could be better for him personally than here. And the reason why I say that is he can be the dude here. He can play 35 minutes a game. He can get a super, super uh, – high shot quantity. He could be the face of the program for four years because I don't think he's a I don't think he's an NBA guy early especially, but with his size, I just don't know if that's the case. But he can be a guy here that gets close to, you know, top three and career points, all that stuff. Guess where Ruffin was committed out of high school for a while? Auburn. Think about him on that Auburn team. He's not getting the the quantity that he would get here, right? He's not getting the shots and all that. Yes, they're winning, all that stuff. But I think for what motivates um, for what motivates Ruffin, it feels like Ole Miss is a fit. He's a Mississippi guy. He played for David Sanders, who's an Ole Miss guy, all that kind of stuff. So it just seems like, you know, A, Ruffin didn't have a bad year one. This is year one, right? And, B, he's a guy that can be the face of a program. And I don't think to – the extent that he is here, he could be the face of many other P5 programs day one when he steps in. That's not really a knock on his talent, but it's more of, you know, how people are going to let him take over and play. Yeah, it's also a great point you made on the morale front because I think it applies to Ruffin as well to where Ruffin never got his feet under him, right? He had this nice stretch where he was just starting to figure it out as an SEC basketball player, and then unfortunately he tears his ACL. Like, that sucks. But, like, he wasn't a guy that played 32 games in his freshman season and it was a toxic situation. And it's like, all right, what are my other options? I guess for the lack of a better phrase, he never seemed to get, like, his feet under him because of injury stuff and poor luck. Torres, as you mentioned, I didn't think about it from this perspective. They were one game short of the tournament last year, and Morrell figured it out toward the end of the year and kind of started to put some stuff together. But largely – I would imagine that Morell looks back at his first two years, this year notwithstanding, because he's had a little bit more consistent success and be like, this hasn't been a ton of fun. Like, we haven't seen a ton of success here. And now I'm three years into this, like, you know, is this time I start not evaluating my options, but, like, is the grass greener somewhere else? Because he's kind of has more scar tissue than a guy like Ruffin, whose college freshman year just never really took off for no other purpose or for no other reason than an injury standpoint. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting is like, hey, I think a lot of people are going to be get checked out of this program going forward till the end of the season. Totally get it. Like we said, baseball starting Friday, all that. But I do think there is an interesting um, storyline here on how they finish because if you end up like six and twelve in the SEC, 
you got some young pieces to build around, some momentum towards the end of the year, all that stuff. That's one thing to a guy like Morrell. But if you don't win another game or win one more, I mean, you it's probably been a pretty tough, you know, locker room all year, pretty down. You didn't get to taste success a whole lot. The, last year, they were one game away from going to the tournament, but Morrell didn't get to taste that success a ton, right, with, with how he was playing and all that stuff. And now he's a contributor. So I think for a guy like Morrell, how this group finishes um, actually could be something big going forward for him and, you know, if, if he is here next year or not. <laughs> so you guys battled the baseball thing, though, when you, particularly when you're there on good teams. Like, what is that like at a, bas- at a school that's caught in the middle? Because that's not a common position to be in. What is that like to where baseball starts up and you're like, ah, oh, oh, shit, like we got to compete with this? Uh, actually, best way to ask this, what are AK's thoughts on college baseball? You know, AK, uh, I always felt like he kind of enjoyed and respected Ole Miss baseball because I think he had a lot of respect for how they did something that not other programs are doing, making it like this social scene and like, you know, all about the atmosphere. I didn't think it I, – I definitely can see where people would get frustrated and how it would make sense for somebody inside our building to get frustrated – But if you really think about it, every year – so I was there 14 to 18. Every year except for the 12 and 20 year, we were kind of on the bubble. And you were playing an SEC play as football teams playing like Charleston Southern and then UCF and then Tulane, right? So, like, going into the SEC tournament – now, Mike normally has a power – he he had a few powerhouse. I think he had a Louisville series one year at home and – you know, he at ECU one year, he, he would have a big opener. But those first couple non-conference games, um, you know, aren't the – they're not SEC series. So, we were kind of playing SEC series where it was survive and advance. It didn't overlap a ton from, like, an attendance standpoint. And there were even times where there were both games in one day that probably helped both sports because you could go to both events. So, I, didn't, I don't think we saw it as much of um, a, a negative as, as some people would think. Um, but, you know, it's crazy how Ole Miss – I mean, how many, how, many, um, how many schools have three revenue-generating sports out there? You know, like that's, right. the, that, that's the interesting thing, and you could probably count them on one, maybe two hands. So I don't think it was something that was um, super huge. You definitely, from a fan support standpoint, sometimes are like, damn, we've got 4,000 people here and they can fill 10,000 at a baseball game. But guess what? Winning sells. Yeah, that's also true. Did You mentioned the uh, admiration that AK had for kind of the environment and social event aspect of it. Did he ever ponder possibly taking the roof off the tad pad and selling alcohol for alcohol is legal? Because I imagine just some of that building structure, laws had to be broken, the fact that Ole Miss had to play in that for so long. Did he ever consider that, making it an outdoor event? Well, you know, I'm not sure that he did or not, but there were a few times that it was an outdoor event. Uh, I was about know, to say, he ran. did point out a couple of times when I was first starting to cover basketball that, that you could see the sky from shoot-around. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there are a few rain delays in there, but uh, actually, when they were building the pavilion, they there was a lot of things from baseball and football that they were trying to incorporate in and try to figure out with the pavilion from a student standpoint, keeping them as close to the action as possible. I think, you know, alcohol sales is something that was pushed by a lot of coaching staffs as well. And 
I think for AK, and I can't speak for him, but one thing that he wanted to do is, hey, we want basketball fans, right? But for for this to work and for us to have a high attendance with how Ole Miss's uh, fan base works, we have to make Ole Miss basketball more of a social event as well. And so when building the pavilion and the concourses and, you know, the kind of Hall of Fame wall and the concourses, the iPads, all that stuff, there are a lot of things built into that to make it more of a social event um, so that there's more than just basketball there to do. It's a good point. On a more serious note, you talk about the, like, not only the player turnover, but the staff turnover as well. When you start getting down to this point to where you've got a coach that's probably getting another year, but not without changes, how does that affect the staff over the last month of the year? Because, you know, whether it's someone leaving voluntarily on their own, and it's a little bit different than football, but I imagine if Kermit gets another year, I, you know, I don't know the, the inner workings or what Keith's thinking or whatever, but I imagine it would be a prudent move to maybe have a little bit of a staff shakeup just to kind of, you know, sometimes it's just something different for the sake of something different. Is that something that affects the team over the last month of the season, or would you prefer to keep your staff intact? Like, I'm just curious how you think this situation plays out and what would be most beneficial to Ole Miss. So I think it all depends coach by coach. A lot of times what you'll hear is for some of these coaches um, that are younger, I think it eats at them a little bit more. But for some of the older coaches, um, you know, that have gotten fired multiple times, I was actually watching, you know, Siski and Neil the other day, you know, kind of talk about that a little bit. Like it's expected a little bit and some of it's out of your control. Um, the mentality that you have to have as a coach when job security is on the line is it's okay for it to be at the back of your head, but if you're constantly thinking about it, it will carry over to work and it'll carry over to the locker room as well. And it's not a good thing. The, the, the deal with the staff that's very interesting to me is I am of the opinion, uh, we've talked about this before, I think in our lifetime, since we've kept up with Ole Miss basketball, we've only hired one P5 assistant. So we've only gotten a P5 assistant from another school. That's Levi. Tony Madlock um, technically was a, from a fired Auburn staff. Owen Miller was at Mississippi State, but I think we got him from Colorado State. So you're not stealing people from P5 staffs. If a coach got fired or left this year, and you're a coach that's got a pretty warm hot seat, is the person that's going to take that job as an assistant somebody that's really going to impact the team that next year? Right. So I say all that to say, if I was in that seat, um, I'm almost taking an assistant that I know can get me a player. It's almost a guy that can 100% go get me an impact transfer and bring him with me. Um, and, you know, who knows where that comes from. But even – a lot of these mid-major schools that we keep up with that are pretty successful, um, think of your Belmonts, your Murray States. You probably could double your salary coming to Ole Miss, but if you think you're going to get fired in a year, is that really the right move um, professionally for you? It, it, it Money motivates a lot of people, but you, you as a coach have to look at the long-term play too. Derek Mason's a great example of it. Just took a four hundred thousand dollar pay cut to go to Oklahoma State because we know, we <laughs> know, one hundred percent. Because but but he knows Harson's probably done next year. 
And so, you know, he doesn't want to be fired twice in three years, Bandy and then Auburn defensive coordinator. So even some of these mid-major guys at good schools that could go and double their salary and maybe even get a multi-year contract, do they make the move? So that, that's the tough part about an assistant spot opening. I know there are a lot of fans out there that thought that that should have been done last year. Um, coaches' philosophies on that sometimes is, A, loyalty gets involved. But B, Kermit was four points away from going to the tournament twice in three years. If you fire an assistant, do you play it? Is it throwing a weakness card out there? Like, hey, maybe the program's not in great shape. That's one side of it. The flip side of it is Lane's fired like three motherfuckers already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they won 10 games this year and, you know, went to the Outback Bowl the year before that. So th there's a lot to weigh there. It's a very interesting thing that different coaches have different strategies on. But um, I, I just don't know if a spot opens, you know, how impactful of a guy can, can, can you really get at this point? It's a great point. I'm curious to see how all this plays out because I do – I tend to lean with you. Unless this really bottoms out. I mean, unless you're talking 0-5 or something like that, I think Kermit gets another year to right the ship. And we'll see what that looks like from both the staff and a player development standpoint. Let's hit some SEC stuff before we get out of here. Uh, you know, you're getting to the crunch time in college hoops, right? This is when it really becomes, I mean, a grind. That's probably not how coaches think about it. They probably think about that from the start, you know, from October on. But, like, February is when rubber meets the road for a lot of programs. And talk about one trending in the wrong direction. I thought A&M would come back to earth. And it seems like they've had – so there was this guy, there's this NBA writer named Baxter Holmes, I think it may be who it was, maybe it was someone else, who used to do this piece called Schedule Losses in the NBA, and it was basically like, to, like tallying and keeping track of like how many teams lost a game because it was like a third game in four nights or something like that, and it made you kind of view the NBA schedule different. That's a very random point, but I have it like centering that back to A&M. They lost three or four in a row after they started 4-0, and and it feels like their last four games, they've caught a team that's either A, really desperate for a win, or one that they're just overmatched by, and that's now turned into eight in a row. The latest example was Auburn at home, 23-2, and coming off a loss to Arkansas. That was just never going to end well for A&M. We know what Auburn is. I don't think losing to Arkansas in the midweek changes anything, but what, what's happening with Buzz there? That's an eight-game losing streak. That's pretty jarring. Yeah, look, I mean, that deal is players, man. I mean, I watched, I watched a lot of that Auburn game, and it was like a pickup game that another team was kicking their ass. Bruce wasn't even having to run a whole lot of sets. Kessler either had or almost had a triple-double. Um, I, I just don't think – I've told you this. I actually think uh, Buzz year one had a really good coaching year. They just haven't recruited at the level that I thought they would, and if he ever does – I think they'll be fine, but um, the margin of the, the margin of error is so small at the SEC level, and you know when, when you don't have a, a ton of talent on that team. I mean, the college basketball fan. I, I wonder how many A and M players they can name, right? Um, so for A and M, it's all about personnel, and you know Buzz is going to keep them trying to fight. I, I, you know, I think that job security wise, he's probably fine. They love him there. Um, but next year he's going to have to go get some dudes. Yeah, you're right. And you've been on this early and that's like, it's interesting because buzz was what they started 14 and one or whatever it is. And, or 15 and one 
And Buzz was kind of the darling of the SEC. It's like, all right, this guy, dark horse for SEC Coach of the Year, and then they literally haven't won a game since. You're talking almost, what, I guess a month without a win. This is like the, the kind of the year three check where you kind of look at it and it's like, hey, he's a good coach, but like this is Texas A&M. You, you got to start getting better dudes there. Like the honeymoon phase in terms of the fan base, this is probably when this starts to shift a little bit and they will be really paying closer attention than you might think, than, you know, the casual fan might usually do to ho how he does in the recruiting in the portal, right? Like this is kind of when you're like, I, right, you know this guy's weaknesses and you know his strengths, the honeymoon phase is over. I think that's a, a great way to look at it Go, going in this next year, especially. I mean, I think that's going to be where rubber meets road and look, buzz. I, I'm not one to bet against him a whole lot. So it wouldn't shock me if it, you know, if he turns it around, A&M's probably a middle of the pack SEC job. Um, so next year is going to be, going to be really interesting uh, for him. I always was curious about the last guy that was there. And I know he, uh, he has a, just, I, I, this is going to sound terrible. Billy Kennedy had like a disease that compromised him a bit. What did you think about the job Billy Kennedy did there? I got into a weird Billy Kennedy rap, uh, rabbit hole not too long ago. I can't even begin to explain to you why. I was probably watching a game. But that guy did a pretty solid job there. And like it felt like a quick hook. But I, there was also a health thing that kind of compromised him too. What are your thoughts on Billy Kennedy's eight years? You know, he kind of had um... – his tenure there had a little bit of cut cliff to it to me. Um, yes, it was, you know, like it was nothing, out, nothing too sweet stuff. and that was it. Yeah. Um, I'll say this about Billy Kennedy. You look at him and you no, know, he, right. Like you said, two sweet 16s, they were able to take advantage of Texas recruiting a few of those years pretty well. Billy to me always, um, and there's <laughs> There's a lot of guys you could say this for, and I think it, it makes for an interesting longer conversation at some point. But Billy's a guy that really relied on having to have a really good staff, in my opinion. Um, when he first got there, people won't remember this, but Stansberry was there. Right. Stansberry, Stansberry was getting dudes left and right, and I think he ended up getting another recruiter that was pretty good inside the state of Texas. But Billy – um, he really had to have a, a good staff to keep that thing going. And there towards the end, I think he was pretty worn out um, from a health standpoint. And they weren't, they weren't getting the caliber of players that they did even like two years before that. He was, that was a guy that was always like, I don't want to say I've ever felt bad for an SEC head coach, but he would come into a press conference, particularly at the pavilion. And he was just so devoid of energy and emotion. I'm like, does this guy enjoy anything he's doing? And, like, maybe that's just kind of how he was acting. I was like, how does that guy go to, to, like, a recruit's living room like, please come play for the Aggies? I just – he was always a mystifying character in that SEC landscape, as, as, especially as it started to get good. But I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think the, best way to, the best way to describe Billy Kennedy is he was interestingly uninteresting. Yes, I think that's a fantastic way to describe it. So that was uh, – I'm glad we bought the, brought the Billy Kennedy wormhole that I went down onto the podcast. Uh, transitioning to just an equally positive situation, is Mike White okay at Florida or do you think this situation is going to get bad? Because this was a game I had my eye on this weekend. We talked about last week after Ole Miss played Florida, like, you know, if you build the team around the front court, maybe that wasn't necessarily by design, but if you have a good front court, you struggle to – you know, your backcourt's not dynamic. You're going to struggle to score. And in this SEC, you're going to struggle in general. I was curious how competitive Florida would be in this game, and the answer was not very. 
I mean, they kept it at arm's length for about, I would say, 27 minutes of this game, but it was never really in doubt. Kentucky, I think, has pretty much solidified themselves as the second-best team in the SEC. But what do you make of this Florida situation? Because they're 16-9, and 6-6. Six and six. They're very bubbly. But, man, this kind of feels toxic in terms of where this is going for Mike White. Well, look, here's the deal with, here's the deal with Florida. It's a top-three job in the league. And so when you look at Florida, we're so accustomed to thinking tournament or bust. You can go to the tournament at Florida, lose game one, and still get fired, right? So I which think is this what thing he hasn't gonna, done, which is weird. Right, right. Well, he's gone to what one elite eight and won a few first round games. Is that so? He did. They missed the postseason his first year there. Didn't make the NCAA tournament. He has elite eight, but he's won a game every year he's been in the at Florida, which is kind of weird. But the, every other, uh, so that he has five tournament bursts, I believe, maybe four. I'll make sure I have this right. But he has one elite eight, and then he's won one game every year he's been there, which makes his tenure fascinating. Yeah, I think for him, um, I don't think his seat is as hot as a few of these guys where it's like automatic, but I think he's one of these where it's going to play out till the end of the season before people know about Billy Donovan because – or excuse me, Mike White, because they think because of Billy Donovan that this is a team that should be going to the Sweet 16, you know, fairly consistently. Right, so he has one Elite Eight, and then he has a round of 32 every other year he's made the tournament, except for 2020, clearly when it got canceled. But it hasn't been a pretty way to do it. Like, the round of 32, he wins a game in the tournament the year after the Elite Eight. They went 21-13. and The year after that, they make the tournament and back in their way in it. He went 20-16 and 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 9-9 in that 2019 SEC year. And then last year, he goes 15-10 and and gets in and wins a tournament game. Like, it's a – it's a very – talk about having, requiring nuance. Like, it's a very bizarre, like, track record there. But I'm kind of with you, right? They, they, they kind of have Auburn football expectations despite that not actually being the reality. Yeah, and before Billy got there, that wasn't a good job. Um, the thing about uh, Mike White is, yes, they probably should have gone to – or he probably needed to go to more Sweet, sweet 16s than they have. But to your point, they haven't been overly impressive in the regular season. No, they have. Yeah, they haven't at all. I mean, it's. I mean, I didn't. I forgot that 2018, 2019 year. There were four games over 500 and somehow made the round of 32. Cal and Kentucky are playing as well as anyone in the country. I don't. I don't know if I'd put Kentucky in the list of five or six teams where you're like, I they could win the whole thing, but they are going to be a tough out in March. I, I think they may be. Um, you I, think I they're do, in that but, tier. Yeah, the way they're playing right now. Now, I saw – I didn't watch the end of the game. I saw Tata Washington get hurt. I don't know what ended up happening there. That's a big one for them. Um, the way they're playing and the way they kind of fit and mold, like last year, Bam LSU was so much fun in the SEC championship game. Them and Auburn this year in the SEC championship game would be a ton of fun on a neutral court. Um, I, I, think they're a, I think they're a group that, if they're playing well, could – could go to the final four and win it all. They, uh, from what I saw from Cal about a week, uh, two days after the game, I believe Tata Washington, it was not as bad as they feared. So I think they will get him back. He may miss a week or two, but it's a fascinating team. That's, I mean, you talk about all the pros that Cal's had in terms of his teams. This has to be like top three best teams he's had there, right? Like they just play a lot better and they're a hell of a lot tougher than some of the other ones they've had too. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think they have as many pros on this team as a, a lot of teams he's had. But like I said earlier, I just like the way that they fit. And I've always been interested to see how Cal would do with the transfer portal. Obviously, Oscar is playing super well. Um, and his stats are un, unbelievable. Um, you know, he'll, he'll go have a 17 and 15 game or something like that. But um, Cal, because he's done this one and done thing, so many times he has to flip his roster every year. So he's used to having a ton of newcomers. And I've always thought that that would be a strength and advantage for him. He's reinvented himself. He's become from the one and done guy to just yeah. kind of being a more well-rounded roster builder. Is Toshiba the national player of the year? Because I don't think I'd caught much of him earlier in the year. And I didn't watch a ton of Kentucky pre-conference play, but particularly that Mississippi state game a couple weeks ago, I watched that game and was like, holy shit. Like, this guy just absolutely dominates. He's like, he has – his rebounding numbers – I was going through this uh, earlier this week. He has a re- – he has – just going – I'm going to list, like, seven rebounding games around. 22, 16, 17, 17, 20, 28. 28 rebounds against Western Kentucky. 16, 16, 14. That was a four-and-a-half-week stretch for him. Yeah, I think he's I think he's definitely on the short list for that. He's so fun to watch. Um it, it's crazy that, you know, having like a transfer leading the player of the year contest for two Hall of Fame coaches at that. Um but yeah, and, and Jabari Smith's so damn good too. He's a lot of fun to watch. His jump shot is is so NBA ready, it's not even funny. But um yeah, he I, I think he's kind of on that short list and maybe leading it right now. Arkansas-Alabama was a hell of a game. I didn't catch this one until the uh, – I would say about most of the second half. I caught, caught it up to it with about 15 minutes remaining in the game. Um, I was actually fairly – it's weird to say I came away from this game fairly impressed with Arkansas's toughness because they had the huge win against Ar- against Auburn at home on Tuesday night. Really didn't have a ton in the second half – in the first, like, 25, 30 minutes of this game. Got down 13 and then really guarded well and got it all the way back to where they took a – I think they were down 60-47 to 47 and then took a 65-64 lead. Alabama wins this game, and they had a, a couple be- much better offensive possessions late than Arkansas did. But I left this game being more impressed with Arkansas despite it being their first loss in like three and a half weeks. Yeah, and Coleman, you know, sneaky can be a, a hard place to play. Um, it can get packed and it can get, it can get loud in there as well. You know, losing by one to Bama, they kind of came back, and I thought Arkansas played pretty well in the second half at times. This is kind of one of those games, and people, you know, coaches aren't into moral victories, but I think both coaches definitely see things that they can build off this game, but also in some lights are happy as well. I mean, Arkansas had won nine in a row. You're going to get the tough one there that you just can't quite get it through. Um Bama needed that one, in my opinion. Not that, like, tournament hopes were going to be in any um, whatever. But, you know, for Bama, I think that they needed to go win one against a a tournament team to get some momentum going because they haven't played as well as I I think they thought they would at this point in the year. We've talked about the flaws that Alabama has, but, man, they have three wins that are pretty much stack up against anyone in the country. Like, What do you make of their tournament chances, right? This is a team that's probably not consistent enough to win, you know, four games to get to a Final Four or whatever. But it's also intriguing from the sense that they can – it seems like despite their flaws in the front court, they can play with anyone. Yeah, they can. And it's it's one of these things where, um, like you said, like they've played two or three Final Four teams this year. 
they always schedule so hard, which I think um, helps them come turning time. They're 22 in the net. They kind of feel like maybe a six seed in the tournament uh, to me, but I don't think that – I don't know that their ceiling is, is super high just because they rely on that shot-making ability from the perimeter, and they could get bullied at the forward spot some, um, you know, by some teams that aren't in the SEC come tournament time. The one game on Saturday I watched start to finish LSU-Mississippi State because I was just curious. This felt like if State wins this, okay, like it's still kind of a grind to try to see if Allen can actually get this team to the tournament. But you've given yourself a little bit of breathing room. So now State's back's up against the wall, and I think they're going to make a coaching change, and I don't think they're making it to the tournament. But this played out like every State game I've watched this year. They've down 15 at halftime. They make a pretty decent run in the second half. And then their offensive execution in the last three and a half minutes of a game is so terrible that you just don't really stand much of a shot. What did you think of how this game played out? Seemed like LSU really needed this, and what a crushing loss for State. Yeah, 100%. I think that I've talked for a while about Howland offensively. I think he has done uh, a poor job of getting – like Iverson Molinar could be averaging 24 or 25 a game this year. I think that – Howland should be getting him the ball more and being more creative in ways to get him the ball, and he's not making it happen. Um, You know, they got down 15, came back in the second half. Um, I'm with you. State has Missouri twice this week, believe it or not, and Alabama as well. If you go one and two this week, you're done. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're you're done. And for Howland, I – I kind of forgot that he was on the hot seat going into this year. But um, my educated opinion is if they don't make the tournament, um, you know, that he's done this year. What is that job like? We talked about a lot of jobs and how it's kind of viewed within the industry. What is the Mississippi State job viewed as at this point? Well, you know, I think a lot of state fans still think about the Richard Williams days and some of the Stansberry days. They're a little behind from a facility standpoint. They do care about it. Um, they have uh, more resources hint, hint, than some people may, um, you know, give, give them credit for. They also, under Howland, and I don't know if this will be a, um, a long-term thing, but they've benefited a lot from having players' legacy. sons and stuff like that legacy. Like, if you told a coach that he could – like that was going to be a part of the job, it would make it a ton more attractive. So, you know, for them, um, I'm, I'm not sure who they would go after. Um, they probably just as a big fuck you to Ole Miss would hire Bryce Drew maybe. Um, <laughs> I you know, could see that happening. But I'll tell you this, a year or two ago, as an Ole Miss guy, as an Ole Miss fan, I was real nervous they were going to cut ties with Howland or he was going to retire and they were going to bring in Steve Forbes. I was real nervous about that for about a week or two. It didn't end up happening, and Forbes has already won like 20 games at Wake Forest this year, so probably a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, um, it's a job that's bottom, you know, four in the league. Um, but, you know, Adidas is a thing, and they like basketball there, so who knows. Now, if I'm a Mississippi State fan – John Cohen making a coaching hire for men's basketball would scare the shit out of me. Has John Cohen been successful at anything he's done from a coaching hire standpoint other than baseball? And he, I get that he hired Limonis, but did he not also hire Canizaro? 
he, he did hire, yeah, he did hire Canizero. And then, uh, I, like, their women's coach, I don't, that's already not worked out, but I don't really know the details behind it. He's had one football coach not work and kind of feels like Leach may have a hot seat going into next year. So, uh, you know, that's one I would be real nervous um, if I had, if I had John Cohen making, you know, a basketball, men's basketball coaching hire for me. He is Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, college hoops junkie. I appreciate the time every week. Not everyone can make a second-to-last SEC team seem interesting, but uh, you continue to work the magic every week, and we will uh, talk to you again soon, my man. Of course. Thank you. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, thank you very much for making us a part of your day. I really appreciate it. We'll have the uh, NASCAR Skybox's NASCAR guru on for Wednesday show. That He may need to record Wednesday night. i got to double-check his schedule. but. Um, We'll have him on either Wednesday or for a Thursday podcast, and then the Mailbag Friday, of course, probably with a baseball preview intertwined with that as well. So big week on the pod. Thanks for tuning in, as always. Really appreciate the feedback from everyone, and uh, looking forward to getting college baseball season underway.